All right, John chapter 2, John chapter 2. Remember, John's goal in writing his gospel is that his readers come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through that faith they might experience the eternal life that comes by trusting him. And John sets out to accomplish that goal by selecting specific miracles Jesus did which prove who Jesus is. And we studied that first sign last week, the changing the water into wine. And this morning we're going to dive into John's second sign, which is the cleansing of the temple. So we pick it up in verse 12. It says, and after this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus, we see him traveling here to the city of Capernaum to join a caravan that's headed to Jerusalem. When it says that he went down, it means literally to descend. Nazareth and Cana are higher in elevation than Capernaum. Capernaum is a fishing village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a small city, but its location made it a center of commerce and trade, so much so that the Romans had a tax polling station there. From Nazareth, this is a 25-mile walk, about a day's journey. Whether he comes from Nazareth or Cana, he can get there in one day. But it mentions that Jesus and his disciples are not alone on this trip. His mom is with him and his brethren. Now, Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. Matthew 13, 55 says the brothers were named James. He's the one who wrote the book of James in the Bible. Joseph. Simon, and then Judas. He's the one who wrote the book of Jude in our Bibles. Now, Matthew 13, 56 says, states that Jesus had sisters. doesn't state how many they are. We just know that it's, it's at least two, and we don't know what their names were. Now, these are not children that Joseph had from a previous marriage. If that were the case, then the oldest of the, the boys would have been given the responsibility of caring for Mary when Joseph died, not Jesus. And yet we see Jesus is the one who's in charge of taking care of Mary. We note that none of these boys are mentioned or the girls are mentioned during Joseph and Mary's trip to Bethlehem, nor on the flight to Egypt. But they are mentioned frequently and almost always with Mary during Jesus's ministry. The natural conclusion is Mary's their mom, you know? Natural conclusion from the text is to conclude that they are Mary's other children from Joseph. That would make them Jesus's half-brothers and sisters, since Jesus was not conceived by Joseph, but by the Holy Ghost. So they had the same mom, not Joseph as dad from a physical standpoint, but obviously Joseph raised Jesus just like he raised them. And that's the way to biblically understand this, okay? Why are they all traveling together? Well, because Capernaum is not their destination. They only stay there, it says, for a short while, a few days, because the reason they're there is they're joining a larger convoy headed to Jerusalem for the Passover, verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the reason they're going up to Jerusalem during Passover is because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was one of three yearly Jewish feasts that required attendance in Jerusalem by all Jewish males over the age of 20. Passover is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 5 and 6, it requires that you sacrifice the Passover lamb 
at the temple, at the place God will choose to put his name, he says. They could not do it in their gates. Deuteronomy 16.5 says, you cannot sacrifice it in your gates. You need to go down to the place where I will put my name. At this point, it's the temple. And there you will sacrifice it to the Lord. So they had to go to Jerusalem. Now, because of this, the city of Jerusalem would swell from its normal population of about 120,000 people to over 2 million people during the feasts. The main thoroughfare that went through the city would have about 250,000 people walking through it all day long. The lines at our Central Florida theme parks have nothing on Passover in Jerusalem. Josephus lists that at least 250,000 lambs were sacrificed at one Passover feast, so much so that the brook Kidron outside the city, it says it ran red. Now, the reason you needed to go in a convoy is because it's a long trip through a very deserted area. Criminals were known to attack lone travelers, so the safest way was to travel in large groups, and one such convoy would be leaving from Capernaum. And so it says Jesus went up from Capernaum to Jerusalem. You say, well, he couldn't have gone up. Jerusalem is south. Correct. But it is up in elevation, which is what this means. The Sea of Galilee is the second lowest lake in the world next to the Dead Sea. Everywhere that you travel from Capernaum, you're going up. Jerusalem is over 3,000 feet higher than the city of Capernaum. And so he went up to Jerusalem. Now, Anytime you have that many people in one place, it's going to make salesmen salivate. And the religious leaders of that day were quite the businessmen. Look at verse 14. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves. And it says that the changers of money were sitting. They were sitting at tables. Now, the temple area that's being described here is not the actual temple proper. It's on the temple mount. But on the temple mount, you have the building of the temple. You have the holy place and then the holy of holies. But outside there, you have an open-air court that is with walls around it, the court of the priests. Then you had another much smaller open-air court, which was the court of the men, and then a much larger open-air court with walls around it as well, the court of the women. To the north and the south of that, you had another open area that did not have walls, and that was the court of the Gentiles. That's what this word temple here is referring to, that large open area on the north and southern part of the temple mount known as the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you were going to bring a sacrifice to the Lord, you had to first go out and select it, either from the best of your own flocks, or you had to go purchase the best of someone else's flocks from them, and then you would bring it to the temple. But this created some challenges. What if you didn't know the scriptures well, and you brought the wrong offering, because you had to bring only certain animals for certain offerings? Or what if the animal injured itself in the trip? You could not offer an injured animal to the Lord. Or what if when you got there, the priest found a blemish that you missed when you checked the animal out? So to solve all these challenges, the priest set up a system whereby you could purchase pre-approved animals. Sounds like a car dealership. Now, this is not God's heart of how this is supposed to work. This is not how he designed worship of him to be. He designed it to be where if you sinned or you wanted to bring an offering, a free will offering to the Lord, you would go to your flocks, you'd pick the best one out, and it would cost you something in that way, a personal cost, not just because, oh, I laid down money for it, but no, this is an animal I was counting on for providing something for my family. 
for my business. And then you would select it, and then you'd travel with it to the temple, and that whole time you would be realizing the seriousness of your sin. That's how God designed it to be. But even though God didn't set up worship to work like this, to be convenient like this, in and of itself, this wasn't an awful thing that the priest did. The problem came because the priest saw this as an opportunity to make money. And so they marked up the pre-approved animals. And if you brought your own animal, they would always find something wrong with it so that you had to buy one of their animals. A rabbi named Simeon, he was the famous grandson of the famous Rabbi Hillel. When he saw what was going on, the exploitation of people on the Temple Mount, he was so disgusted by it that he interfered, which is rare for a rabbi to interfere with priest issues. He interfered and he ended up getting them to bring the price down from four days of wages to three days of wages. Because of this high price and exploitation, Worship at the temple became a hated necessity for God's people. They hated going there. They hated having to do it. This also created a problem for Gentile worshipers. I mean, could you imagine trying to pray or seek the Lord in an area packed with animals and with shoppers? Now, in addition to the animal salesman here, he mentions there were also changers of money sitting Changers of money, the word means those who dealt in small coins. In addition to the higher prices for the pre-approved animals, you had to use a temple shekel that had been consecrated for holy use to purchase those animals. So before you even got to the animal sellers, you had to visit these guys at their tables to convert your coin, which you, you could only get from them, into the one that would be acceptable, which, by the way, they charged you to convert. So when Jesus gets to the temple, he goes up on the mount, and he sees all this going on, his holy anger was aroused, and he takes action. Look at verse 15. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the changers' money, and he overthrew the tables, and he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Jesus drives them all out of the temple, all the people, the money, money, all the money changers, the salesmen, the animals too, it mentions afterwards. He comes to the boxes where the money's held. He picks them up, turns them over, shakes out the money. He comes to the tables where they're doing business. He knocks the tables over. And then... He says to the guys who sold the birds, he said, come back in and get the cages and take those out of here. Now, it says Jesus made a whip, which means he did not come to the temple with a whip. I've never made a whip before. Sounds like fun. So I watched some videos, how-to videos on how to make a whip that, like Jesus made here. It takes a good 20 to 30 minutes depending upon how skilled the person is. I was watching that. I'm like, I could never do this. Consider the mindset required to construct a whip for 20 to 30 minutes. I'm the type of person, like at our house, when something it, it requires building, everyone in the family scatters. Because I'm not good at building. 
I remember my wife got me, I don't know, birthday, Christmas one year or something, a basketball coop many, many years ago. And I'm putting it together and she comes out and she's like, hey, babe, you reading the directions? You got it figured out? Need any help? I'm like, I got this. I know what I'm doing. I'm the type of person, though, that if you, if you do, maybe you do math, like you do math and, and you're working on a problem and all of a sudden, like the pages start to blur, like numbers start to fuzz. I'm not that way with math, but I am that way with building things. Like you can show me a schematic or show me, hey, look, you know, this piece, I'm like, I, 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 that looks like a foreign language to me. So back then they didn't have YouTube, so I couldn't watch someone build it. And so I'm trying to figure out the directions and on the, the post for the thing, it's, there's a big sticker, big, huge sticker on the post. And it says, please make sure when you insert this into the other thing that you do it correctly because you can't get this out after you put it in. Of course, I'm getting flustered and frustrated while I'm making this, and I don't notice the sticker. And I put the thing in, and then you put it together, and you realize the whole thing's to the side. And so for like five or six years, we had a basketball hoop where the base, instead of being this way, was to the side. So when I'm working on stuff, I get flustered real easily because it doesn't come easily to me, and that makes me more inefficient. If you're going to make a whip that's not going to fall apart right away, You can't be like that. The mindset required to construct something like this, something that takes that long to make. You can't be raging. You can't be out of control because you'll fail to make the whip properly. Jesus did this in thoughtful anger, not childish rage. He did it with the precision required to accomplish his angry intent. And when Jesus finished making the whip, John simply records what he does. He says that he drove them all out of the temple. The word all here is emphatic. And this refers to the people who sold the animals and worked the money exchange tables. None of them were left in the court when Jesus was done. They were all out. The animals drove them all out. No one was left. Now, when we look at this, we need to point out a couple important things. Number one, nowhere... Nowhere in the Scripture does it state that Jesus hit anyone with the whip. Now, I don't know if he did or he didn't, but it does not say that he did, which means we must not say that he did. If you do that, you're going to add to the Scripture, which we should not do. I bring this up because Jesus' actions here have become the go-to passage for justifying violence, physical violence for Christians. That individual Christians can be called to do violence upon the wicked in order to drive them out of our presence. Now, if you break into my home, I'm going to drive you out of my home with physical violence. But that's not what's going on. The idea of someone going on to the initiative where they're going to see something they don't like or something they think is wrong and do physical violence to get those people to stop doing it. The Roman Catholic Church, John Calvin, used these verses as proof for why Christians could execute men for heresy or unbelief. That is bad teaching, and lots of wicked behavior has resulted from that. Jesus is not giving a teaching here on the use of physical violence. He did not turn to his disciples and go, now, watch and learn. None of that's going on here. There is no afterwards where Jesus sits down and goes, okay, guys, you see what I did? Yeah, go and do that likewise. There's none of that here. 
Jesus is not giving a teaching here on the use of physical violence, nor does he ask his disciples to make whips and help. It's not like he turns to John and he's like, bro, what are you doing? Do you see what I'm doing? Get to work. James, I thought you were a son of thunder, man. Let's go. None of that. I remember one day, my dad grew up in New York City. I grew up in Altamont Springs. Vast difference, right? My dad's favorite show was West Side Story. I'm sure it's great, but for the gang fights, you know, that was my dad's life, you know, as a kid. He was not a believer. And so, when my brother came home one day and somebody had jumped him on the walk home from school, my dad's answer was, Will, Joe, our two older brothers, from my other brother Chris, get the baseball bats. I remember, I'm in the car, I play baseball, okay? I hit baseballs with bats, not heads, all right? And I'm in the car and I'm like, I'm like, Dad, I'm not from Brooklyn, I'm from Altamont. I'm like, what am I going to do with this? Driving around the neighborhood looking for who knows. Jesus was not there with his gang, okay? To take over the Temple Mount. The church is not Israel. Okay? We are not a national theocracy, there is no Christian nation. The Christian nation is right here, these individual people. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. We are the people. In the same way this building is not the church, you're the church. There is no favored people outside of the people of Israel. We do not replace them, nor are we added to them. Therefore, violent judgment is never the people of God's work. It's God's work. And he gives that authority also to governments, but not to the church. To use Jesus' actions here to prove any point, beside the point that John is making in these verses, is bad teaching, and bad teaching always leads to wicked behavior. It's why we have a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. The entire book is about how people in the name of Christ killed believers. The point that John is making in these verses has nothing to do with, this is how you deal with wicked. It has to do with Jesus doing something that only God could do. Now, with everything I just said, the other extreme teaching is not true either. I find it extremely difficult to believe that Jesus just twirled the whip around and said, everybody out, please. God brought violent calamity upon Egypt the night of the first Passover. There was weeping in all of Egypt because of what God did. And as God, Jesus is qualified to bring violent judgment upon the wicked, unlike us. He is qualified. When he returns to judge the wicked, the Bible says his garments will end up spattered in blood. So, if Jesus did strike people, he is well within his rights to do so. I hear people say, oh, no. why would Jesus do physical violence and hurt people? Because he's God. He doesn't abide by the same things we do because he can do that without all the junk that's inside us getting in the way. He doesn't make any mistakes. 
And in these salesmen's cases, only striking them would be a mercy because what they deserved was the same death Eli's sons received for making worship an onerous thing to God's people. Now, I don't know what Jesus did to get them to all leave. I don't know if he struck people. I don't know if he didn't. I don't know if he struck the animals. I don't know if he didn't. I don't know if he cracked the whip in the same way you fire a gun, people scatter. I, I don't know what he did, but I'll tell you this. It was supernatural. Because one dude with a whip is not going to part a bunch of <laughs> corrupt merchants from their money and their wares. I promise you that. Jesus unveiled something of his divine nature here that moved every man and every animal to listen to him. Try to pull that off in a mall. You're going to get tackled or in Florida shot. If not by a bunch of customers, by a mall cop. It's not like there was no authority up on the mountain there. No authority on the temple mount. The priests had soldiers that were assigned to them. They're the ones that come to arrest Jesus later on. I'm sure a few of them were there with the money changers to make sure no one's robbing them. The Antonio Fortress has a full view of the court of the Gentiles. It's right against the southern side of the temple mount. An entire garrison of Roman soldiers was inside with soldiers monitoring the temple mount on the walls. People saw what Jesus was doing and yet no one stops him. That not a single person. You hear stories of scenarios. I mean, we just had that horrible, sad story at the, the Super Bowl celebration for the Chiefs and a couple kids opened fire and, you know, and thankfully, you know, somebody decided to tackle them and, and save the day. But I mean, I promise you, for the, you have the guy who tackled them, you have the lady who grabbed the gun and got it away. There was probably someone else running or someone else who froze, right? I mean, we're all different personalities. We all handle crisis situations differently. Some of us, we get into those situations, we freeze up. Some of us run. Some of us think, I got to deal with that. Some of us plan. I'm sure that there was at least one person who had the personality of, oh yeah? I mean, I'm sure there was at least one person whose personality type was like, you're not going to tell me what to do. And yet no one stops Jesus. That Jesus is in full control of the entire court with simply a whip in his hand is a miracle that no mere man could accomplish. And Jesus makes it clear that this is a sign to prove who he is. Because he claims to be more than a man when he orders the dove sellers to take their birds out. He says, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Make not literally means stop making my father's house a marketplace. Stop turning it into a marketplace. Sometimes we get well-meaning people who love Jesus and who do cool things and they say, hey, I make things or I, I do this. Can I sell it in the church lobby? And the answer will always be no because this is not a marketplace. This is a place of worship, a place to honor the Lord. We're not going to take advantage of people while they're here to worship. It's why we don't talk about money very often here. That's why it's not a main focus. I'm not trying to critique other churches that talk about giving or whatever a lot. I'm just saying the reason we don't is because we're not here to exploit you. We're here to serve you. And you're here to worship. Now, any godly person could come and preach against the financial exploitation that was going on there. But only one person could make the claim that this is his father's temple. Later, some will accuse Jesus of blasphemy because he said his 
God was his father. So they knew what Jesus meant when he used these words. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Jesus here is proclaiming who he is just as loudly as John the Baptist did. I am God's son. I have authority in this place. And I tell you to stop. And the crazy thing is, they did. They did. I could barely get people to do that in my own house. And they like me. Well, the people who are affected by this, they will respond to Jesus. But first, we must see what the disciples thought about all this. Look at verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. That word remembered there, it means to jog the memory, to cause yourself, to cause you to think about something that you had thought about in the past, but you weren't, it wasn't something that was in the forefront of your mind at present. They saw this going on. Remember, they're not participating, all right? I mean, can you imagine what it was like for them? You get up to the Temple Mount, and you're like, this is awesome. Like, we're here with our rabbi. You know, it's our first time being disciples up on the Temple Mount. You know, what are we going to do? Who are we going to meet? And all of a sudden, you're like, John, what is, what is he doing? I think he's making a whip. James, is he making a whip? I think he's making a whip. Why is he making a whip? And all of a sudden, he goes and runs off, and you're like... And boom, everybody scatters, animals are all gone, and Jesus is all by himself. You're over here watching your master, and all this happens. And when, when it happens, it, John, who was there, he says, I remembered that day that it jogged my memory about this scripture. And it's from Psalm 69.9, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. The, your devotion, that zeal means a deep devotion to someone or something, in this case, uh, the temple. It has eaten you up, means to consume completely. John remembers the feeling of seeing a different side of Jesus, where he saw a person completely dedicated to, one who was swallowed up in devotion to God's temple. There was an intensity to Jesus that showed his dedication to the place of what his father intended it to be. You know, in Revelation chapter 21, it tells us there won't be a, a temple in the new heaven and new earth. It mentions in verses 22 through 27 of Revelation 21, why? And in the why, it explains what the temple existed for. We won't need it because we'll get this without it. It says in Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works an abomination or makes a lie, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." The temple was a place for those who believed in the Lord, who had given their lives to the Lord, who wanted to follow Him and know Him, where they could come and leave all that other junk behind, and they could get to know the Lord. They could worship Him, bring their, the glory to Him, and be enlightened by Him to experience His presence. That's what the temple existed for, not this nonsense that it had become. 
And so this devotion they see in Jesus jog the disciples' memory and they think about this scripture. David writes Psalm 69 about a time in his life when everyone had turned against him. And he mentions, Lord, I, I was zealous for you. I was zealous for your, your house. At the time, it wasn't a temple. It was the tabernacle. I loved being there, and, and I loved you. I, I, I was opposed to all these things that were wrong out there, but, but people hated me for that. David's writing about his own experiences there, but that psalm is quoted seven times, different parts of it in the New Testament to refer to the Messiah. And so the disciples, they see all this, and they're absolutely awed. They, they see Jesus, and they realize something is very wrong with how we've been seeing worship. Something is very wrong about how we've been seeing worship. Because while we may not be like these thieves over there that he drove out, we are also not at all like him. We're not devoted to this house like he is. Part of me wonders if this was the first germ of conviction for Peter, who would eventually say to Jesus, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. I think this is maybe that first glimpse of, of, of who Jesus is, his holiness, in contrast to their own unholiness. You see, John records this because Jesus standing alone at this moment demands our attention. It, it's designed to jog our memory of scriptures that reveal how different he is from us, that we might remember who he is and act appropriately. I'm not a high church individual in the sense of, I think laughter is, is a good thing. You know, I don't think holy just means solemn and stiff. I don't think that's a, a biblical idea. But guys, we're never gonna have a Sunday evening Super Bowl service, all right? That's not gonna happen. If, if it ever comes to a place where nobody's showing up, then maybe we'll cancel it, whatever. But we're not going to have a Super Bowl service. We're here to worship the Lord, all right? Not Patrick Mahomes. We're not going to have a, a halftime show where we call someone up from the church to sing who knows what. We're not going to have a soft... Oh, I probably should shut up now. <laughs> My wife played me they been this thing where somebody was revealing their audio, uh, their, their church app, and it was audio of the Kardashians. There's nothing holy about the Kardashians. There's no business having that associated with worship, right? I, I don't know them, and I'm not critiquing them, but I, there's nothing holy about that. That has no place, all right? If you're the pastor, you don't come flying into the service on a wrecking ball during the halftime show of your Super Bowl service, all right? Might get people to chuckle and laugh, but that's not what this is. This is not the Lord's house and the temple in the sense, but it's a place where we're coming to worship. When you sing, do you think about what you're singing? This event, when we see Jesus alone, is to jog our memory, to remind us who he is. He's not like us. When we do these things, they're holy things. When you pray, you know, when you, you read your Bible, it's a holy thing. 
It's very personal. It doesn't have to be, I don't mean it has to be rigid, and that's not what I mean, but it's a holy thing. I remember when they were teaching us, you know, when you study your Bible, read your Bible, it says, you know, how to do that well, how to, how to do that well. And it sounds silly, but it's so important. First, pray. <laughs> pray. Have the recognition, Lord, I'm not going to figure this out on my own. So I'm not going to learn this well because I'm so smart or because I work really hard. But to acknowledge the fact that, Lord, I, I need you. You're different than me. You're awesome. You're high and lifted up. I'm not. And when we consider that the Bible says that our bodies are now God's temple, this, this passage is not something that we can just brush over. This is a holy record that John shares with us here. It's one that we must seriously ponder so that we might trust Jesus more. That's his goal, right? So we might trust Jesus more. Now, someone eventually responds to Jesus, what he says and what he does. Verse 18, then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign do you show unto us seeing that you do these things? We don't know who this is. The Jews here could refer to the everybody who was on the Temple Mount, or maybe just the salesman. Uh, John usually uses this phrase to refer to the religious leaders. Like in John 1.19, it says, and this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. The Jews there, of course, would be the religious leaders. So I, I lean that way, but who knows who it is? They make a demand. They, they say, what sign do you show unto us seeing that you do these things? How, do something, demonstrate that you have the authority to, to do this. They understood what Jesus said when he said, this is my dad's house. You say you're God's son. Prove to us your authority is higher than those who oversee this place. I mean, if they're the money changers or the, the salesmen, they, they've got to be thinking to themselves, we're here, we're, we have permission to be here. The priest told us we could be here. Who are you? Show us a sign to prove us that you're God's son. To which I love what F. F. Bruce said. He said, what sign could be more eloquent than what they just witnessed? They're all standing on the outside and he's on the inside. What more does he need to do? How about you not budging from where you are? How about you not stopping him? If Jesus doesn't have the authority, then what's keeping all of you from getting rid of him? He's just one guy with a whip. But Jesus, interestingly, gives them an answer. He gives them the final sign, which would prove to all that he is who he claimed to be on this day. Jesus answered, verse 19, and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus isn't telling them to destroy this temple. He says, you can destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, this word for temple is different than the one up in verse 14. This does refer to the inner sanctuary, the holy place, and the holy of holies where God's presence dwelt. And they think Jesus is talking about the temple structure that's behind him. You can destroy that thing, and I'll, I'll build it back up in three days. To which, verse 20, they say, then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple and building, and will you rear it up in three days? They were not correct because it wasn't done being built. It wouldn't be finished for another 36 years. And yet, they misunderstand his claim completely. This would not be the first nor the last time that people were upset with God because they incorrectly thought they understood what he meant. I've met people who are so mad at God because they heard some guy say something about the Bible and then I sit down with them and I say, well, the Bible doesn't say that. I remember I was walking with a guy once, and uh, he was looking for me to buy something for him. And I said, yeah, I said, I'd be happy to get you some food. And 
whatever. And anyway, he was talking about something. Thanks, man. You know, doing God's work, whatever, blah, blah. Just like God says, da, da, da. And I said, well, actually, the Bible doesn't say that. And he looks at me and he's like, yeah, it does. I said, where? He's like, what, are you a pastor or something? I said, yes. <laughs> I said, where did, where did you hear that? Anyway, we got in a conversation. He's talking about all these things, why he won't believe, da, 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 the Bible can't be true because of this, this, and this. And I'm like, the Bible doesn't say any of those things. Really? I said, who told you that? Well, I don't know that. I said, well, then why didn't you go look it up? Why do you trust him? All sorts of people mad at God because they incorrectly understand, think they understand what he meant. Interesting again, though, Jesus does not argue with them. And in fact, for all we know, this ends the conversation, ends the conflict when he says that. They laugh it off, whatever. But John tells us they misunderstood Jesus, that, that all of them did. Verse 21, but he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. The disciples thought that this was a big day when it happened, but they didn't realize how significant this sign was until the resurrection jogged their memory. I mean, they thought, whoa, look at Jesus standing alone. Nobody's, you know, touching him. Nobody's messing with him. Wow. But then when Jesus said what he said, it wasn't until after three years later he rose from the dead that they remembered that he had said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, that he was talking about his resurrection. They remembered that he told us that they would reject him, that they would think to destroy him, but he'd raise himself back from the dead three days later. And he did all of that three years before it happened. It says they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. The scripture is the one they thought of back then, Psalm 69. They thought, oh, I wonder if this is talking about the Messiah, about maybe when David said that, it's talking about the Messiah. Well, then finally they said, it is, it has to be. And then they also believed the word that Jesus spoke here, that he said, my father's house, this is my father's house. Which brings us to the crux of the sign. This is John's proof that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did raise up the temple of his body three days after its destruction. And it was good enough for John and his other fellow disciples. So what about you? What's good, going to be good enough for you? Well, Jesus' words and actions created quite the stir. And then Jesus did other miracles during his stay in Jerusalem that garnered attention. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name because they saw the miracles which he did, literally which he was doing. John doesn't give any details on the additional signs Jesus provided, only that Jesus did these miracles, these signs throughout the entire time he was in Jerusalem. And as a result, many believed in his name. And normally when we see that phrase, believed in, it means genuine faith. The word in is almost always indicating more than just accepting the truth about a person. But John tells us there was a superficial quality to their faith. It was in his name, not in him. The idea of Messiah, not Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus' response to them gives us another glimpse into his divine glory. But Jesus did not, verse 24, Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. The phrase Jesus did not commit, it means he kept on refusing to entrust himself to them. 
That's interesting because Jesus enthusiastically invited the six men from Galilee to follow him, but he didn't pick up any new disciples in Jerusalem. Why? Well, in the same way that Jesus knew Nathanael was a genuine Israelite, Jesus is familiar with all of us to the very core of our being. And so he knew something was off about them. It says that he knew all. That word know, it refers to acquired knowledge, knowledge gained by experience. How did he know them, know them, know them? He just met them. Because Jesus knows all of us. He's intimately familiar with us because he's been interacting with us from the day we were born. That's only possible if Jesus existed before he was born, if he's the eternal creator who existed before time. And so John closes with an important application from that truth that he knows all. He says he did not need that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The phrase did not need, he means he didn't need anybody to do a task for him. Jesus didn't need to turn to James or John or Peter and say, hey, do a background check on this guy, Bob. He wants to be a disciple. None of that. He didn't have to say, hey, follow that guy around, find out if he's the real deal. Get to know him. None of that. He didn't need any of that. Jesus doesn't need anyone to do a background check on us or to convince him that we're a good person to have on his team because he already knows all of our thoughts and all of our motives. Knowing this about Jesus and how he used that divine knowledge to not commit to these new prospects leaves me with two personal applications. So as the team comes up, we'll leave it with that. First off, this means that the amount of time we spend convincing ourselves and others that we are good people or that God owes us something is an absolute waste of time. It's a waste of time. Because even if I convince myself or others that God owes me something, that I've given it my best and maybe done a halfway decent job at it, the reality is Jesus knows the truth. I'm, I'm not fooling Him. I'm not making any case before Him. My justifications and others' commendations will not hold any weight when it is most important, which is when I stand before an all-knowing God. The second application is this. Jesus knows everything about me, and yet he still died for me. He's intimately familiar with every time I rejected him or his ways. He's intimately familiar with my stubbornness and pride, my selfishness and my unkindness, and the list goes on and on. And yet, even though he's intimately familiar with all that, he still loves me, and he still wants me to be with him. While Jesus did not pick up any new disciples in Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that he sent those who did genuinely follow him out into all the world to preach the good news that anyone can be his disciple. Jesus knows everything about you, but he welcomes you to come. Follow me, he says. Have you answered his call yet? And if you have, are you inviting others to do the same? Let's all stand. Lord, we are so in need of pausing at this passage to see you standing there alone, no one opposing you, revealing your divine glory, a glimpse in full control of the situation. Lord, it calls us to examine ourselves. So, Lord, we don't want to be those who 
make our, our life with you, our walk with you, our worship a, a common thing or an unholy thing. We want to be those who trust you more and who are making you known to others. So God, we commit ourselves to that. We commit ourselves to you, Jesus, genuinely and fully. And with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you're here this morning and you're you've making that decision, you say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to turn from my sins and I want to follow Jesus. I want to be his disciple. If you're making that decision this morning, you're receiving Christ, I'd like to pray with you as you make that choice. So just lift your hand high as we do that. Amen. Amen. Anybody else this morning? Amen. Anybody else this morning? Say, I want to follow Jesus. I just want to give him my life. The Lord, you see every hand, you see every heart, and what a joy it is to see you and who you are and to realize I'm not like that, and yet you still love us. And to stop making excuses and just to say, Lord, here I am. I come to you just as I am because I got no other way I can come. Will you receive me? Will you forgive me? Will you live inside me that I might be your temple? Lord, for everyone who's making that prayer theirs this morning, would you come and live inside them? Would you make them born again, Lord? And would you begin to change their lives as they seek to follow you? Bless them, I pray, and bless all of us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.